Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Season 2, Episode 7 of Mythic Mission with Professor Michael Jahosky, a podcast which explores J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's understanding of myth as grand narrative or narrated worldview and its relationship with various disciplines of the humanities from a Christian perspective. I'm very pleased and excited to have on today's show Dr. Christopher Yuan, who graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005 and received a Master's in Biblical Exegesis in 2007 and a Doctorate of Ministry in 2014. Christopher taught the Bible at Moody Bible Institute for 12 years, and his speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached five continents. He speaks at conferences on college campuses and in churches. Dr. Yuan has co-authored with his mother their memoir, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope, which has sold over 100,000 copies and is now in eight languages. Dr. Yuan's newest book, which is the subject of our discussion today, is called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. It was named 2020's Book of the Year for Social Issues by Outreach Magazine. He has been interviewed in many media outlets, including Christianity Today, In the Market with Janet Parshall, The Eric Metexas Show, and The Christian Post. Of course, we are excited to host him here today on Mythic Mission. I think this is a very timely conversation. I'm looking forward to everyone's uh, comments and questions about today's show. Please feel free to reach out. You know the usual uh, ways of doing that. You can find us at www.mythicmission.com. The website has been updated. Go check that out. There's some new stuff on there. New information about the new branch of our ministry, Mythic Mission Tabletop Apologetics, and some other things as well. We uh, would love to hear from you on the Facebook group for Mythic Mission, which is by private invite only for being a Patreon supporter. And don't forget that if you are uh, moved to um, help support our show and our lay ministry, please go to our website. You can find information about how to become a patron uh, for as little as $3 a month on patreon.com and get a lot of really cool perks and merchandise as well as some other things that are forthcoming. So very exciting time to join us on the mission. We hope that you'll prayerfully consider that. And we're very excited to talk with uh, Dr. Yuan today. Uh, one last thing, I've um, entitled today's episode, Be Holy Because I Am Holy. This is a reference to Leviticus 11.44. And in case uh, I forget to put that in the show notes, I want to make sure that I stated that. And of course, that's going to be a subject for today's conversation. It's going to come up a lot, what holiness is. And uh, I really think you guys are going to be um, uh, blessed by this and uh, going to be challenged by some of the... Uh, the dialogue, and I'm hoping to hear from you. So we're looking forward to it and enjoy today's show. We'll see you out there on the mission and God bless. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mythic Mission. Uh, Dr. Yuan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Michael. Yes. So as you know, I was telling you before the show, uh, I have a lot of questions. I'm sure we're not going to get through <laughs> each and every one of them, but I appreciate you making the time to, uh, to read through them in advance and uh, look forward to our dialogue. Amen. Amen. Mm. So, you know, you probably would have guessed from the title of the podcast that we talk a lot about myths and I get some raised eyebrows from time to time, you know, what do you mean by <laughs> myth? Are you saying the gospel is false? And I'm, no, no, no. Uh, you know, I get into it and explain it to people, but I always like to ask kind of a tie-in question. And I, I wanted to just start today's show um, I've gathered the sense just from the subtitle of your book uh, and the reference to God's grand story, which is how Alistair E. McGrath has defined myth as grand story or narrated worldview, which is kind of how I think Tolkien and Lewis also looked at it and why he looks at it that way. 
And I think sometimes it's helpful to frame conversations, especially about sexuality and identity in terms of, you know, I want to say for lack of a better word, but competing stories, different storied explanations of how we look at the world. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, sure. I, I've got a lot of thoughts on that. Uh, <laughs> Good. Definitely. You know, it's, um, we all have, you know, it's, it's the meta narrative that, mm -hmm. that, that we, um, each person has, whether they know it or not. Right. And, um, and that meta narrative that we have, um, it's about reality and, and how we explain reality. Mm -hmm. um, and so people who would not agree with us would have a different meta narrative that, like, for example, would not include God at all. You know, God is not does not help explain the reality of their world or the reality of the world around us. Um, and so that definitely guides how we view the world, view ourselves, how we live, et cetera. And so when I put that into my, uh, my subtitle, it was very intentional, um, you know, but it's, it, it's sex, desire, and relationships shaped by God's grand story. And what is that? Well, it's quite simply God's uh, redemptive work in the world, uh, and, and specifically with the people of God, beginning with creation, then the fall, and then going all the way through to redemption, Christ coming, the, the Messiah, the Savior, mm -hmm. and then ultimately to where we are going, which is, people say this differently, I use consummation, or mm -hmm. it's, you know, restoration, etc. Um, but I think when we frame the conversation around this very important meta narrative, which I think is the meta of all meta narratives. It's the ultimate meta narrative because it's the true meta narrative. Mm -hmm. um, I think we'll, we're able to answer so many questions yes. correctly and it just puts everything in line. So yeah. that's why I was saying that to understand this very important, but kind of very relevant and very controversial topic, we need to begin there, looking through the world and understanding sexuality through the lens of God's grand story. I love it. Yeah, you're speaking our language. Um, and I, I think McGrath, uh, I mentioned Alistair McGrath, who, who, whose mm -hmm. work I admire, he, he put it this way, that the Christian meta narrative or myth is the story that makes sense of why we tell stories. And mm -hmm. he says that I would add that it also is the story that makes place makes a place for the other stories that that uh, you know like lewis said in one of his essays that you know man's myths right the the mm. glimpses of the cosmic story and mm. i love that and I, I think you you had alluded to something like that in what you just said that you know it's the story that makes it, things fit in with this way of seeing and i think a lot of people view it even even lewis and his conversion story you know he kind of approached tolkien and said well if i, if I become a christian it's kind of an either or i have to you know, it's all, all, all in with Christ and I can't read the pagan myths anymore. And Tolkien kind of helped him understand that nuanced relationship. And so I, I really love that you included that in your subtitle. And I think it's a, a much more existential way of also getting into this topic. You know, it, it mm -hmm. involves imagination and intellect. Mm -hmm. um, so that's very okay. important. Thank you for commenting on that. Um, I want to start with our questions. And uh, the first two are I think more personal kind of background questions, as you know. So for those who are unfamiliar with your personal story, uh, you know, Sarah and I are, but can you give us a brief overview of how you came to Christ and 
you really didn't have a typical path to becoming a Bible professor. So <laughs> I didn't. So okay. it's, uh, when I, when I teach, I always, I don't tell my story at first. And so I usually do it in the middle of the semester. So I, I shock several of my students who didn't know, but many of the other students already knew, but no kidding. Um, so I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I wrestled with my sexuality, but I didn't really come out as, as I would call it back then mm -hmm. until my early twenties, which is, as we see today, late. I mean, you know, with the, if you're teaching college, you're if the kids identify as gay. They probably did that in junior high, high school, and today we're even seeing kids uh, grade school and even younger. Unfortunately, um, yeah, yeah. well, and, and that's getting the detrange thing, which we can talk about later. Which yes, I think sometimes speaks a little bit more about what the parents are believing than mm. really what the kids are believing. But amen to that. Um, so, uh, with, with the, I, I wrestled with my sexuality. I didn't tell anyone I came out in my early twenties. I'm originally from Chicago and I was living in Louisville, Kentucky at that time, pursuing my doctorate in dentistry. Mm. And I came out after a year of dental school, went home, told my parents, devastated my mom and dad who were not Christian. We were, we were not Christian, uh, at all. None of us were. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's just God and his sovereignty and, and just his loving kindness draw my mother to himself in a very, very radical way. Mm. And um, she, my, my father did as well, you know, just through that crisis. And, and it wasn't like, like that my coming out was the issue. A lot of other things were some uh, mitigating mm. factors with my parents. Their, their marriage was a disaster. My brother mm. was doing thing and then you know so it's you know it's just my brother and I so my mom felt like a failure and, and oh. going to end her life and just all of this so everything oh culminated kind of this was more like the straw that broke the camel's back got it but she came to <laughs> faith my father father did as well both of them very radical transformation I went in the opposite direction I was like mm. you know you can have your crazy religion good for you not for me um and while in dental school I was um, you know, just doing what all my friends are doing. I'm in, I'm a, you know, young 20 year old kid and I was just having fun partying, mm -hmm. going out to the bars, going out to the clubs, going out to the gay clubs. And, um, while, while doing, dental, you know, while as a dental student, cause all my other dental student friends, uh, were doing all my classmates were doing this. Mm -hmm. I began experimenting with drugs. Again, not all gay men do drugs. Right, uh, right. I, I unfortunately did. Yeah. And eventually I was selling drugs. I got expelled from dental school, moved to Atlanta, and I began not just selling, but supplying. This oh, wow. whole time, my parents didn't know anything. They didn't know I was doing drugs, but, but they knew that I needed to know Christ. Mm -hmm. Prayed for that miracle. Visit me one time. I kicked them out. Dad gave me a Bible and I, mm. and I was just like, don't give me your Bible. Uh, <laughs> I threw it in the trash can. That's how much I despise God and oh, religion wow. and, and, and the Bible. And my mom and dad just knew I was hopeless, mm. but they committed not to focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. My mom began uh, praying a bold prayer, God, do whatever it takes, which mm. is a scary prayer for a mom yeah. to make. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then she enlisted over 100 prayer warriors from their church, from the Bible study fellowship group. Uh, my mom fasted every Monday for seven years, once fasted 39 days on my behalf. And she just prayed that God would do whatever it takes. Um, that whatever it takes came with a bang on my door. Um, 
<laughs> and on my doorstep, 12 federal drug enforcement agents landed police. And so I was arrested, found myself in jail, um, walked around the cell block a few days after that. And of all things, I found a Gideon's New Testament in the trash. Oh, Took wow. it back to my cell and I began reading it. And, and I'll be honest, Michael, I was not thinking, oh, this is the word of God, the Bible. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was not thinking, you know, this is the answer to my problems. I just was thinking, man, I've got nothing else to do. And there was no other book. So I was like, I just go read this little book. And yeah. I began with the gospel of Mark. I don't know why, but in the shortest gospel. So I knew a little bit about, you know, literature. And, you know, that was the one of the shortest ones. So in one sitting, I read through the entire gospel of Mark. Wow. And, and, and I kept reading it um, and it began to convict me, but and mm. so, and I'm like, wait, this is not news. I'm like, I'm being told I'm a sinner. How is that good? Yeah. Well, things got worse. I got the news that I was HIV positive. And oh. a few days after that, I was sitting in my cell and someone had scribbled something on the book of me and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11 mm. for I know the plans I have for you plans to prosper you, not to harm you plans to give you a future enough. Well, I knew what that meant, um, and I didn't know what a plan was. God just gave me a f- enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day, the next, and the next. Yeah. And so my transformation was really slow, really gradual, but God began to convict me that my identity shouldn't be in my sexuality, but it needs to be in Christ. That was the slow process. And um, But anyway, kind of through that whole process, through my time in prison, um, actually called a ministry while in prison. I realized that I was living in sin, that I shouldn't have put my identity in my sin. Uh, God, e- even a chaplain tried to like convince me, give me a book that, it, you know, it's okay. And I just huh. read it with the Bible next to it. And it was the Holy Spirit that convicted me that these assertions were distorting the truth. I, you know, I think back, I'm like, wow, well, that's a miracle. Because yeah. everything inside me wanted to say, this is true. But yeah. the Holy it's not. Um, so God began to convict me and he began to point me and, and one of my books began of my processing. It was just me and God and the, and his word and the Holy spirit guy truth, you know, truth is about duality, but I was called to ministry. Um, when I went to dental school, I actually never got my bachelor's, So I, I got accepted oh. early. So I had to go back to Bible mm. college and, um, you know, get that, uh, get my bachelor's. And then I went on. Um, to get my master's in exegesis and then got my doctorate in ministry. Um, and wow. so just wrote my book with my own, uh, our testimony yeah. uh, called Out of a Far Country and then um, my, my newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Yeah. And I see that you touched a little bit on, on my next question. Uh, thank you mm. so much for sharing. It's a, such a beautiful story, but uh, I think probably during the, at the time, it, it didn't feel like one. Um, so, much, <laughs> right. so much of it. Uh, God always reveals and glimpses backwards in our life, you know, as we look back and kind of see his providential Mm -hmm. hand. So I I can only imagine uh, what that experience has been like for you. Thank you for sharing it. Mm. So my next question probably overlaps with some things you've said, uh, but in your, in your first book, which was the memoir you mentioned, you wrote with your mother out of Mm -hmm. a far country. uh, When you came out, you mentioned to your mom, both of you were not yet believers in Christ and neither was Mm -hmm. your dad. Correct. Um, her initial response was rejection. And it wasn't until she became a Christian, then realized that she was a sinner as well, that she was able yep. to love you as God loves all of us. And I, w- I want to hear more about that. But just with one last thing to add, I'll talk with many of my gay students who will say, you know, that's just my, my issue is, I have a problem with you saying that this is wrong. 
Mm-hmm. And, and being called a sinner, it, it kind of feels like, I, I don't know, they've, they've struggled to kind of explain it to me, but it just feels like on what grounds are you saying that I'm a sinner? And I don't know if you can help address that a little bit too, but yeah, you know, know, so about my mom and my dad, they, um, we, we hear the narrative today that whether it's in, um, movies or, um, you know, Netflix documentaries that Christian parents cannot and let me preface that Christian parents who actually believe in the Bible, who mm-hmm. actually believe uh, that God is God, not, not this kind of force be with you type of God, but mm-hmm. he is the God of Abraham, Jacob, uh, Isaac and Jacob. He is the God of the old Testament and the new Testament. You know, Jesus is his son. People who have this high view of scripture cannot love their gay children. They have to get rid of the Bible. They have to shut off and maybe become a so-called progressive Christian or Mm. mainline, you know, whatever it is. But um, I had the exact opposite experience. My parents were not Christian. And in essence, they Mm. rejected me. It wasn't until they became followers of Jesus that they knew that they had to love me as God loved them, Romans 5, while they were still powerless while they were still sinners, while they were even enemies. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that um, Mm -hmm. understanding that God loves us, even though he does not agree with how we live. And even neither does he agree. I mean, the atheist, you know, for God to love the world. So that's, that's, that applies to all people, not just Christians doesn't say for God only love Christians. (laughs) With with like the question about your student, you know, uh, or students, uh, these are questions that I get asked as well. I, I think I help people to understand um, or, or maybe I can, you know, I think a good apologist is a person that doesn't always have all the right answers. We have this, a lot of um, lay people think that, oh, to be a, you know, your apologist or, you know, a good apologist is someone, you know, like these people who are so knowledgeable and have all this stuff in their heads and, mm. um, and they mm. <laughs> you know, can answer every single question. I actually think a good apologist isn't necessarily someone who has all the answers. It's someone mm-hmm. who just asks good questions. Amen. And um, who, who, and to do that, you got to listen. So you got to listen to their question, to their question, and then kick it back with another question. It could be simple. One of the easiest ways is a clarifying question. What do you mean by, before mm-hmm. I, you know, before I answer that question, uh, can you explain to me what you mean by sin? What's your understanding of that? And oftentimes right. their explanation of sin is not the, the Bible's definition of sin. I mean, the Old Testament, you know, when it talks about sin, right. it's, you know, it's missing the mark. Mm-hmm. And so in other words, it's, it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, who of us can say we're perfect, you know? And so right. that it's not just, you know, cause we think, or I used to think sin is being a murderer, right. you know, a rapist, uh, whatever, you know, just the worst of the worst. Yeah. Easy. It, uh, uh, it is examples. that, yeah. but it's also a person who, you know, does what we were, God wants us to do and we don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it also means being jealous or, or hating in my heart. Um, yep. So I think that's helpful to like reframe it, that we're not accusing you when we say you're a sinner, that you're a murderer, whatever, mm-hmm. but we're just saying, 
we've all missed the mark. Every and, and this is everyone. I'm not just pointing out to those who have same-sex attraction or identify as gay. Right. Every human being, as scripture clearly communicates, mm. um, has missed the mark. Very good. And I think maybe the underlying presupposition is that they have a problem that the foundation, the grounding for calling this a sin, um, being gay sin or you know, having same-sex attraction or many of the other examples we could think of is that it's grounded in what the Bible says. And so it's a mistrust or distrust of the Bible. And maybe that leads back to a uh, lack of belief in the personal God of the Bible, et cetera. So yes, yep. well, I think we'll come back to this, um, yeah, good. but that, that was really helpful. Thank you. So my next question, um, early on in your book, you say that the subtle shift, I'm quoting from you, from what to who has created a radically distorted view of personhood. This is a very important topic. I think people are really going to benefit from this. Can you talk about what you mean by that as it pertains to sexuality and identity? Um, please. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And, and, and I'll have to um, kind of reveal a little bit as well that um, I was heavily influenced when I was writing this by Rosaria Butterfield, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. And mm -hmm. she wrote uh, three books. She's working on her fourth right now. But the oh, uh, first one was like her memoir. Second one was on identity called Openness Unhindered. The third one was a little bit more practical theology on hospitality. Um, and the fourth one now she's working on is, is the fourth one now is kind of about um, lies that we have in the world. Ah. And, um, so the, the, it was a second book that focused upon identity and really helped with um, me understanding about personhood and, and understanding sexuality through the lens of philosophy <clears throat> and theology, which I think was missing a little bit, but so what she was really, uh, and helped me understand. And so I, what I was trying to communicate is for so long, we have viewed sexuality, uh, rightly as what we feel, what we do, the relationships we have, what are, you know, our experiences, but I would say beginning in the mid 1800s, you know, it, it shifted from not just what I feel and what I experience, but who I am. Right. So therefore it's become this, uh, not a new way to describe our experience, but it's become a new category of humanity mm. that now are we, not only are we like, we can be put in these different boxes of, well, you're a man or you're a woman, I mean, and now it's, you know, or you're, uh, you know, lighter skin or you're darker skin or whatever, or by ethnicities, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, but now we are put in these categories according to our sexual and romantic desires. And right. we're even seeing that going further now to, uh, to our subjective reality of ourselves known as mm -hmm. gender. Right. Um, so right. th this is where it's, you know, we're, we're shifting this, you know, you know, we have this paradigm, heterosexuality, homosexuality, and bisexuality. Um, but this, this framework, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, mm -hmm. it, it, it turns our, our feelings into our essence. Yes. So, you know, as I, I said in my book, it turns desire into personhood, right? Experience into ontology where now experience reigns supreme mm -hmm. and everything else has to bow down before it. Um, That's right. you know, I, I often, 
like to say, you know, no longer are we sola scriptura, scripture alone, but now it's sola experientia, experience yeah. alone. And that, that is basically our God. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I love that quote, the terms heterosexual and homosexual turn desire into personhood, experience into ontology. So how, you know, we, we feel has now become who we are. And, exactly. and, and uh, in so many ways, this is wrong. And I think <clears throat> behind that, once again, is one of the big assumptions or presuppositions of our modern or postmodern age is that truth is in the eye of the beholder. Goodness is in the eye of the beholder. It's purely mm -hmm. subjective. Uh, it isn't just how we think. Of course, we're subjects with, you know, epistemologically, we, we are the ones doing the thinking, but what we're thinking about is objective. And so I think there's confusion with just basic philosophy and that, that problematic assumption undergirds this. And so now it's, however I feel, this is who I am. And right. that can be very problematic. And I think it is Intensely. very problematic mm -hmm. in yes. so many ways, so even transcending this conversation. So right. um, a little bit more on, on that. Could you just give us a few highlights of the historical background you mentioned? You said starting in the 19th century, this yep. change from mm -hmm. behavior to identity with psychology has been so significant. Could you talk a yeah. little bit more about that? Well, you know, it, so the, we have the mid 1800s um, where we, we we call that the romantic period. So before I was a Christian, um, right. I, uh, I played piano. So, oh, nice. so your, your listeners can't tell this, uh, but I'm Chinese <laughs> and uh, well, maybe for my last name. Uh, so yeah. I, I, I often joke, you know, that being raised Chinese, uh, Chinese American means three things. Obey your parents, do well in school and practice piano. <laughs> and um, my favorite time period was the romantic period. You know, you had Beethoven and Chopin and it was just all, I mean, I also like Baroque as well, Bach, yeah. um, but uh, yeah. Mozart kind of on the, the cusp of, you know, in between. I love that period because it was mm -hmm. um, like getting in tune with your emotions, the art um, and, uh, the music was so, it just drew you in. Um, I'd mm -hmm. weep, you know, sometimes hearing just some, you know, Chopin or, or just all of, all of that period was, is, is, is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Agreed. But then there's this, um, the subtle underneath. So, you know, romantic period, I think is more about the, the literature and the, you know, that the poetry, I mean, William Wadsworth, you know, my favorite mm -hmm. poem is, you know, I wandered lonely as a cloud, you know, the ah. daffodil one. And um, yeah, yeah. so it's, it's all about getting in tune with nature and, and emotions. So a lot about, you know, the, the literature and the art and the music, but that's, that's a, there's a, a myth underneath that there's a meta narrative underneath that so romantic period is 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 not so much known as a kind of philosophy of, of, or a worldview but actually it is yeah that's uh, right in that um of course they were kind of responding as well from the church you know that the, the boogeyman is the church but they threw the baby out with the bad one. so they threw you know the, the problems of the church they threw god out along mm -hmm. with the problems of the church and so obviously that leaves a void. In other words, if we're not created, um, mm -hmm. which is what, the, you know, all the philosophers and, and the, the thinkers in academia were, were thinking then, mm -hmm. then, you know, who are we? And, and so they had to kind of then create themselves. Um, and they were also kind of 
you know, kind of responding to kind of the industrial period where everything was just very wooden. And, and I mean, so much grew during that time as well, but it was sure. kind of going back to, oh, well, we've got our feelings and let's get back in tune with that. So that's, in, uh, in other words, that's the, uh, the soil from which now we have, um, uh, you know, the psychological, uh, uh, you know, psychologists like Freud, which was mm-hmm. toward the end of the 19th century, and he really popularized these terms, you know, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual. Now, he wasn't the one that coined them. Right. Other German psychi- psychiatrists did, but he definitely made them mainstream uh, to where, and, and, and it's careful we, we need to see what they were doing. They were not really describing, um, well, this is the experience and we're going to kind of name it. Mm-hmm. But actually what it then became was it's a new category of person that kind of to, you know, the question that we're, what we were just saying before. Yeah. So we have that, you know, it's the romantic period, uh, but then we have, then we have these philosophies that were during that time period, like existentialism, which is all about experience, you know, yeah. we have no meaning. So how do we create meaning? It's through our lived experience again. That's I mean, right. So we're, we're seeing the, the connecting the dots to where we are today. I mean, everything that we see, which of course I didn't realize this until I was in, in seminary. When mm-hmm. I took a philosophy class, I was like, whoa, I did it, you know, in history. And I was like, I had no idea. Like what yeah. I'm thinking today is rooted back 200 years ago to this yeah. and even further. I mean, we can even go back to, you know, Plato and stuff. Mm-hmm. That just, that blew my mind. I didn't get that as a high school kid. I just must have missed all that. <laughs> but when I was able to connect those dots of how my thinking has been so shaped by these ancient people that I thought were boring and didn't make sense. <laughs> it's that's, our culture in the West uh, is is not what we are apart from the, how it was shaped hundreds of years ago. So definitely during that time. And then we have nihilism as well, that it's like, oh, yeah. well, you know, it's, it's it's kind of this angst of, uh, you know, and it really comes down to there's no God. Ultimately, that's that's yeah. how I see it. That's that it's this wrong meta narrative. Um, yeah. But but that's where we are today. So when we when Christians who sometimes don't understand the philosophy and, and, and the connect the dots part. We're like, Oh my goodness, where did all this come from? You know, transgenderism. It's like, just follow the dots. I'd like to say, and then of course, from that we have postmodernism. I mean, so Mm -hmm. really I I feel like all we're doing, this is not anything new, really. We're just, we're reaping, we're picking the rotten fruit of postmodernity, nihilism, existentialism, and the romantic period that we're never really, uh addressed or i mean they were addressed but they were just left to kind of fester and and to grow and even in the church which i think is you know also unfortunate but yes so that's the progression of where we are today when it comes to sexual identity and now especially gender identity is we can find its roots back you know several hundred years ago thank you that was very helpful and i think it's great i heard this phrase somewhere maybe it was tim keller i don't know where i picked Mm -hmm. it up but um nietzsche has a a genealogy of morals writing, I think maybe I'm thinking, yeah, but there is a genealogy to our ideas, right? That, that That's kind of what you were talking about. And I think so many of my students, when I'm just the other day, we started our summer term and just talking about the broad brushstrokes of the three eras, pre-modernity, modernity, post-modernity, just hearing about how much each of those eras have has influenced the way we shape and the way we look at identity and art and you know, the world we live in and how we can know things is, um, 
it's incredible. And, and watching yeah. them kind of discover, Oh my gosh, you know, I didn't realize that <laughs> this was an influence on how I think now, uh, yeah. who, who yeah. would have seen that connection? So that that's right. super important. Um, oh yeah. How we can know it, things or how we just can't know things. <laughs> it, well, exactly. That's right. Yeah. Not everything is known through reason. That's another mind blowing uh, point for some people. I think, was it Carl Truman who wrote a book about uh, some of the influences recently? tracing yes. some of those you know, genealogies so. are you familiar um that he just turned his that that book uh the rise and um the the um the rise and fall of the modern self or, yeah it was just the rise to... and triumph i'm sorry no the rise and i have get that wrong uh, oh, yeah. but he turned that book into a a more readable book oh yeah. or uh, i i joke for like for mortals <laughs> uh, right, and he calls right. it a strange new world so I, that yes. i think for me is one of the best books that i've written uh, uh, that i've i've not written that i yeah. read lately uh, right. but that's exactly right michael he yeah. um he traces that so mm -hmm. well um and and it's brilliant and uh, so yeah. I, I yeah that's that's definitely as we're talking about this you know i just tried to do that in just maybe two pages three pages oh, sure. Mario did like a whole chapter on that but <laughs> i think um truman definitely did a phenomenal job both of yes. those. Like if you want to dig deeper go to his first one mm -hmm. uh, but, the, but the second one a brave uh, a strange new world is yeah excellent. good i think i think i did get it and I've, I've just been reading through so many other books and it got backlogged <laughs> i've got to go pull it out I think yes. I have both versions, but yes, I had heard that. So write that down, folks, and, and go read yes. it. But um, back to your book and my next question. So there's a little background on this question. We recently watched you on uh, Elizabeth Urbanowicz. You did a talk, I think, on her show mm -hmm. about sex and gender for parents and children. And That's it was right. very helpful. Sarah and I appreciated it. So thank you. Um, I've also, as I told you um, before the show, read uh, Preston Sprinkle's book, Embodied, mm -hmm. a couple times, just going mm -hmm. back and forth through it, trying to you know, wrestle with it and its challenges and that it's presented. And there's, um, as I confided in you, there's, there's some that I agree with. There's, there's much that I don't. So that's sort of the, the background here. But for example, he says something like this, the Bible's primary invitation to every Christian is not to act more like a man or to act more like a woman, but to act more like Jesus. That's from the end of chapter five. Couldn't agree more. I think that's a, um, a great way to frame it. Would you agree? I, I would. And yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, yes, I, I would have said it differently, uh, yeah, I guess. Sure. Yep. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, moving on from that, I, I continue to read. And I think at the end of the next chapter, chapter six, he says something like this. If our internal sense of self is more definitive of who we are than our bodies, then we should embrace that identity. But if our bodies are more definitive, then Christian discipleship means moving toward embracing our embodied identities. Discipleship includes inviting God to tell us who we are and who he wants us to become. That I had to put a, a couple of sticky notes on in my Kindle and I was typing some things and thinking, okay, I've really got to think that through. So I have two follow-up questions to this that tie into your book, that things that you've addressed. Um, first, the first question is, could you give us a little bit of clarity? I know this is a huge topic on how to understand the term sex and gender because you know they, they were the same. They, they aren't now, there's some changes, people use them, they equivocate all the time. So there's a lot of confusion. Um, could we just speak to that first? Yeah, and um, you know, I, at, for your background and, and uh, to this question, mm -hmm. one of my favorite quotes maybe ever, uh, Charles Spurgeon has said mm. that discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. 
Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. There's a lot out there. I mean, a lot of Christian books um, or say they're Christian. Um, There's even a lot of books when it comes to sexuality and gender that say helpful things. Mm -hmm. But the important thing is knowing that's discernment. I mean, yeah. well, I don't have kids, but I mean, a five-year-old, you know, is, is learning and often can knows the difference between right and wrong, Mm -hmm. but that's, that's not like discernment. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. And that's my struggle with, uh, with books like this is there's a lot of helpful things, very winsome. And, and yet it's the trajectory, uh, that that is off that mm-hmm. um you know i often tell about this story back uh during the cold cold war and i can't remember the exact date maybe in the 80s uh a korean airline left um uh somewhere i think maybe europe and then but it had to kind of maybe go through alaska oh no i'm sorry new york go mm-hmm. through alaska to get to to go to korea well mm-hmm. when it was refueling in 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 alaska uh, and then they took off, they set it off. It, the, the autopilot was off by just a few degrees, mm-hmm. just a few degrees. First, you know, after an hour, they were only off by a few miles, but five, five miles in, they were going over Russian territory mm-hmm. and they were shut down in the middle of the night. You know, it, it hit the big news. Uh, yeah. But all this to say, uh, when we are off just by a little bit, mm-hmm. we can be totally off miles off down the road so this is really very important to be clear one thing i learned in in seminary if there's a mist in the pulpit there's a fog in the pews Hmm. and so as that weighs heavy on me you know as as i teach as i write uh people are looking to me if there's a mist in what i say there's going to be a fog in the audience. Well said. And so this is kind of one of those things in these statements that is just not, I mean, maybe even worse than misty, but people are just confused. It's yeah. very loving sound. Uh, but anyway, I think it's important for us to distinguish between masculinity and femininity as opposed mm-hmm. to kind of how people we act or, 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 or live because I, I, you know, I, I think that was just a little too vague. I, I think mm-hmm. it's more clear about um, norms. But let's go back to kind of these categories of sex and gender. I mean, as we know, Mm -hmm. Michael, it used to be sex and gender used to mean are are fairly synonymous. Uh, And even today, people kind of use them synonymously. But the world, especially transgender activists and gender and feminists, et cetera, are we're seeing there's they're actually making a very clear distinction between sex and gender. And, And Michael, you'll probably appreciate this, you know, being in, you know, work in the arts and and you know, working with language and stuff mm-hmm. years ago, maybe decades ago, gender was essentially you know a discussion, at least in academia, only in like English departments or mm-hmm. like you know literature or Latin, you know, or you know, we're talking about gender, <laughs> right? Of right. words that yeah, that yeah. you know you're you know you're doing declensions and you know whether it's <laughs> Greek or Latin and you know German and and you know so we're thinking about gender in that way that. <laughs> that this verb, and then we're matching a, an adjective or a pronoun and, and the genders need to match. Right. But right. it's, and that's a pretty objective thing that, you know, of, of doing that. But now where mm. sex is a 
a, a, an objective reality of being male or female that we can see as biological, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not only that, which I'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, you know, it, it, and, and sex is not assigned at birth. It's, there's this whole mis- distortion. Sex is observed. A doctor does not randomly assign sex. It is well an said. objective truth that can be um, affirmed by a blood test. Yeah. Now, what about intersex? That's oftentimes kind of the pushback. Now, intersex is a biological anomaly. Mm -hmm. As someone who's, who went to dental school, I, I, you know, I studied years. I was three months before I was getting my doctorate. I passed national boards, part one and part two. I mm. just didn't get my actual degree to get, and I was three months away from getting. So I know the, the, the health science world really well in sure. the medical field. Um, Good. And anomalies, a medical anomaly never nullifies categories mm. ever. Mm. And yet for this reason, you know, for this one issue, you know, activists now kind of say, oh, because of intersex, therefore we, we have no male or female. We don't uh-huh. do that with any other anomaly, medical anomaly, Down syndrome, mm-hmm. a human, you know, a person has an extra chromosome. Does that then mean we don't know how many chromosomes human humans have? That's ridiculous. No, no doctor, no scientist would ever say that, but because mm-hmm. of activism and because of it's, this is the correct way to think we have now kind of changed this. Wow. So, um, wow. so that's sex. Gender is not yeah. objective, but it's a subjective self-realization or self kind of perception of ourselves. Mm-hmm. I view myself as a woman. Now, I'm not. I, I, I don't want to get into. Well, I, I I do believe that this is something. It's a condition of people. Sure. But that's not my point. Uh, right. I, it, that's a <clears throat> that's a that condition of gender dysphoria is a reality of the fall as. Right. talks about our minds are darkened. It's the noetic effects of the fall. That's right. And so, you know, so when we think about sex and gender and we're, we're trying to understand what's going on in the world today, we have to understand their language and how language now has changed. Yeah. And I think it's, that's important for us to do as well, that we need to now I'm, I'm at least this is my whole world that I live in. I'm very careful now to, of, of the, the way that I use the words. I think sometimes churches, uh, and and speakers are now kind of just using these words interchangeably. I think we, now we have to be much more careful because they have mm-hmm. new definitions. Sex is objective. It's a binary classification of male or female. Mm-hmm. Gender is not. It's a subjective self-perception. Again, we're going back to what we were talking about before, Michael, right? right? That's well, right. Experience, that is now everything. And now experience supersedes Mm-hmm. Objectivity. Subjectivity now is more important than objectivity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's where now psychology is essentially uh, usurps biology, both yeah. sciences, but now it's what I think and feel sure. is now more important. And now we're going to adapt our biology to fit our psychology. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the realm that we're in. And um, uh, so anyway, I, fascinating. I would, yeah, I would, uh, you know, that's that distinction that we have between sex and gender. Yeah, you know, I, I almost think as if um, that the 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 conversation about gender being so, sort of a subjectivity that that's how I feel, that's the the, the way I identify, um, you know, is getting projected back in that sense um, because once again, it's something we want to be able to control. But 
I think reframing this issue, we all struggle to a certain extent with gender and, and, you know, men sometimes don't feel masculine women don't Mm -hmm. feel feminine. Um, But reframing this to put it in terms of what our identity truly is in Christ. And we're going to come to that might help alleviate, right. Some of of that, some of that problem. Well, well, and also I I would, um, and, and this is where, um, gender is so fluid right now in yeah. its definition, at least I, sure. in its de- definition, because when, when I look on like all the, most of the definitions that are on Merriam Webster or Oxford, it's, right. um, I think it's, it's using gender in like masculinity and femininity. Uh, and I would call those more norms, but right. I see this younger generation, not so much. I, what I th- see is, I think our, our younger generation, they're conflating categories. So yes. I'm actually kind of teasing these out to actually three different categories. So we have mm. the uh, uh, objective reality, a binary reality of, of, of male or female uh, that, that can be confirmed by genetics, et cetera. And, and just, you know, our physical sex organs. Um, uh, number two, it's the subjective reality of, how I perceive myself. Do I perceive myself as a man or woman? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's gender. But I think the third category are norms where mm-hmm. of masculinity and femininity of, of how men and women are perceived or what is viewed to be like manly, right? Uh, what is viewed to be womanly, mm-hmm. um, you know, men do this, men are, are rough or tough, you know, and then those are social constructs. So, sure. So we have a sex, biological sex, which is, you know, or, you know, sex, which is biological, objective reality, mm-hmm. gender, which has now become this subjective self-perception. Mm-hmm. But then we also have norms, which is more a social construct. I love that. Uh, and and yeah. then, you know, so we have that. But then I also have this fourth category, uh, which are um, uh, roles of, uh-huh. uh, the, that are biblical, you know, talking right. about how, how, you know, we call this kind of these, the whole discussion about biblical manhood and womanhood Mm -hmm. where we have these distinctions. So I actually kind of see four roles and I don't know if you can tell so far, uh, Michael, but I like categories. (laughs) Yeah. I'm very categorical. That's the way I think. Like I, I'm not so much, Rosario is really good at these big picture type of things. I'm, I, I I kind of get into the details and I like to kind of, that's, I I think much more clear when there's something really complex. I was like, I just need to kind of put things in real clear categories. And I think, you know, oftentimes that's just helpful for others as well. Oh, I, I agree. I'm, I'm right there with you. And I think that also draws some of the fire away from this. Well, no, gender is subjective and we get to define that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. No, um, that's a bit more complicated. We, we can talk about the noetic effects, but you're saying yeah. if we look at this, this other category of, um, I'm sorry, what was it? The third one was yeah, uh, norms, norms, right. Yes. And, yeah. and that gets more to masculinity and femininity. That's we right. can then address, well, sure, we all experience, you know, if a guy, uh, and I think Sprinkle talks about this in his book too, not all men like to go to football games or to right. to grill, you know, and stuff. That'll be me. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And there are a lot of things like I, I find myself standing around a lot of guys talking about traveling and I, I did so much of it in my life. I don't do it as a, as a professor uh, now and in my adulthood, but, you know, they're talking about golf and this. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'd rather, I'm either talking with the women or I'm hanging out with the kids in the pool or something. Yeah. You know, a yeah. couple guys want to come over and talk intellectual stuff. I'm like, oh, that's me. Yeah. Or they want to nerd out, you know, but yes, I can use myself as an example too to say, I mean, but I love to grill. So, okay. Does that make me 
what does that make me? Yeah. Does, do like do I have a man or <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah right. One quarter. Yes. Yeah. How do I, how do I divide that up? So, and, and I think it's, it's good that, you know, to further explain uh, the norms, I think we, it's right for us to question that, you know, sure. in America, like, like we were just saying, you know, a man is someone who likes to grill or go to the football game or a construction worker. <laughs> and I kind of joke, you know, because it's more cultural, you take right. that kind of quintessential example in America of a man, you right. take that to Asia, and that wouldn't be masculine, uh, maybe barbaric, but not masculine. <laughs> so right. I think That's those right. things are helpful. Uh, and also, who says a man can't be emotional? You know, Jesus wept. That's who right. says a man can't like music? Um, so I think those are, or, or even who can't, who, who says a, a girl can't be good at sports? Or, exactly. You know, so I, I think we, exactly. we can definitely, as Christians, know we can question these norms, right? But then we, if then to say, therefore, we can question our sex or mm -hmm. gender, we're conflating categories. And I think mm -hmm. that's really helpful for us to communicate to our kids and other people that we're engaging with. Let's not conflate these, not let's not just say because norms, masculinity and femininity, are shaped by culture and kind of they're, they're malleable, then right. therefore, you know, sex is as well. Yeah, um, we're, we're mixing categories. Sure, I can see that now. That was extremely helpful. And I'm, I'm sure um, many uh, who are listening are going to be uh, hopefully taking notes. And I, I know I've, I've got more questions, but I've got to get on to some more questions that I have about your book. I think people really want to hear this. So this yeah. is a great segue to uh, talk about what holy sexuality is and mm -hmm. how we really should view ourselves. We shouldn't define ourselves as uh, based on our ethnicity or uh, are being male, male or female. I'm thinking of um, Galatians, isn't it? Uh, where Paul talks about that's right. this. There's um, neither. That's there's right. Neither male or female. Yep. yep. Yeah, I love that. Love that verse. And so instead, we're to be rooting our identity in uh, Christ. And I remember too, I first encountered this idea before I found your book. Um, Rebecca McLaughlin has a book, I think, called Confronting Christianity, and she approaches it in a similar kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, but let me hear from you about what holy sexuality is for you. That's the heart of your book. Yeah. So we should talk about that. Yeah, it is. And, um, and, and, and I think, you know, kind of pulling off of, you know, Galatians there, you know, that there's neither male or female, uh, there's neither uh, um, slave or free uh, Jew or Gentile. That's right. It's interesting where it says there's neither male and female. That's, that's yeah. a little thing to, you know, interpretive thing to kind of go under, but I'm not going to go in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. But definitely. Um, but also, I think uh, Paul wasn't meaning that there's just somehow this obliteration that like we're in heaven and we're going to be androgynous. Right. Uh, not at all. No. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, talking about, um, you know, equality in, in a sense, you know, that we're mm -hmm. talking about here. That this is about equality in scripture, that we're all the same. Um, right. Doesn't mean that we're no longer distinct. Right. Uh, but so, yeah, you know, the uh, and then we have this kind of also myth in a sense or 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 misunderstanding. Uh, I'm using it a little differently now misunderstanding <laughs> of um, how my my sex as male or female and my ethnicity as Chinese and my sexuality, um, you know, whatever a person might identify as is mm -hmm. now the same. And, uh, and it's these, you know, where my sex is objective, my ethnicity is objective, sexuality, 
I would not put in the objective category, not saying that it's not real. It's just more of subjective reality of experience. But mm-hmm. getting into the holy sexuality, where did this concept come from? It actually kind of was birthed out of my frustration. <laughs> I was a new Christian and I'm like, okay, you know, renew the Bible. Yeah. Nothing else. I have tons of time in my hands, reading the Bible and coming across these passages, Old Testament, New Testament, you know, Genesis 19, you know, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, you know, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, and, and some other passages. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I see where the Bible's saying that same-sex relationships are not his will. Mm-hmm. So then does that mean... So if homosexuality is not his will and heterosexuality, then then logically, it seems, right? Heterosexuality must be. But I kept Mm. reading even more passages in the old and the new that was condemning sin that were heterosexual in nature, Mm. whether it was adultery or whether it was sex before marriage or rape or, you know, incest Mm. that were all heterosexual in nature. I'm like, okay, heterosexuality cannot be be the goal. And this is the problem, Michael. Mm. Christians, I think, unfortunately, sometimes we pigeonhole ourselves into the wrong framework. Heterosexuality, mm-hmm. homosexuality, bisexuality is a secular Freudian framework, as we were talking about before. Yep. So yep. what are the options? I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm like, what then then what is it? Right. And I just kept reading through scripture again, uh, because I had lots of time on my hands. And I just read, you know, <laughs> read through the Bible. Right. over and over again. And he was just like, there's just these two paths, mm. two paths. First path is when you are unmarried, when you are single, you're going to be sexually abstinent. Mm-hmm. The other path would be if we become married, um, then how are we going to live? And, and I'm just using scripture's definition for marriage that mm-hmm. Jesus affirms in Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10, a male and a female mm-hmm. with person is biblically married, then they're going to be faithful to their spouse or the opposite sex. So in a nutshell, holy sexuality is just chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. And the beauty of this is mm-hmm. that is for all people. We're not like saying, well, for these type of people, that this is how they're supposed to live. For these type of people, they can't have more options. And, and I did not say right. option. I said two paths intentionally because I actually view, how, you know, what path we're on, which can change over time, right? It, sure. You know, remote, we all start out as single, which is why, you know, mm-hmm. singleness is not a choice. I've never met anyone who was born married and mm-hmm. everyone starts <laughs> out single. That's right. And we also end up single Matthew 22 in, in, mm-hmm. in eternity, but mm-hmm. many people in between will be. So I view, I view singleness, not so much as a kind of this temporary state before marriage, but I almost view marriage as this temporary state before eternity. Mm-hmm. Um, Love that. So we see that this is for all people, either chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. And we have some who are kind of today saying, well, I don't have that choice. So I just has to be celibate. I don't actually, in my books, I, I didn't use that term intentionally as well, because I think celibacy now has become this chosen lifelong vocation that I'm not exactly convinced that that is exactly what, uh, what God, God is calling us. Or that is necessarily what, um, is something I think that's more rooted in in more church history. This concept mm. of a of a lifelong chosen vocation. Some people mm-hmm. might might make that, but I think for most people, this this conversation of celibacy has totally eclipsed the more important conversation of just the state of being unmarried, the state of singleness. 
First Corinthians 7, that whole chapter that, that, that Paul talks about is not actually a chapter on celibacy. It's just mm. a chapter on singleness. Mm. Agamas is, is the word there. Agamas, which just means unmarried. Um, okay. And so I think that that's much more helpful for us to understand. So this, so holy sexuality, I think it's more helpful just to think of, this is not like my lot in life. I just have to be single for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, but it's it's something that we hold out with a, with an open hand. For me, I, I'm 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 still a single man at 51, but mm-hmm. I'm open to marriage because I'm open to what God might do in my life. But I'm not seeing that as the ultimate goal, or marriage is the only way to be happy or even to be whole. I'm only whole in Christ. Yeah. I might become one, but being wow. whole. Is, uh, so I tell my students even at Moody Bridal Institute <laughs> that before you become one, be whole. In other words, before you become one in marriage, be whole in Christ. Mm. Marriage does not make you whole. Jesus does. Wow. Yeah, that is that is something I think both my wife and I would have liked to have heard more in the, what, what was it, one premarital uh, you know, requirement meeting with the pastor. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah, we're good. We're good to go. Let's, uh, you know, <laughs> right. I don't know who it was that said it, or maybe it was an in-law or maybe it was Sarah, but you know, it's like the only thing we, we, uh, we allow people to do without really getting qualified, you know, marriages. Mm. Um, right. but I mean, I think we could approach being single the same way in a sense. I mean, that, that's a, it's, it's also an, an art. It's something we need to learn to, mm. uh, to, to do well. Um, but I love how all of this is, is pointing to, um, our identity in Christ and that we're not yes. whole, you know, having, having more friends on Facebook or having more actual friends or both, or having a spouse um, or, or getting, getting that accolade or that job isn't what makes it makes us whole, but it's, it's being uh, recognized as, as, you know, the child of God. Amen. And, uh, and, and that is very powerful. And I think that uh, will help people uh, greatly and just meditating on that. So I have so many other questions um, still too about lingering questions about gender, but I, I do mm. want to, to come back uh, if we can to that. I know we're, we're running yeah. low on time. Um, yeah. It's all right. This is yeah. fun for me. Oh, good. Well, th- th- <laughs> me too. I mean, I'm just, I guess if I could for, for a second, I, I'm still struggling with, you know, so is gender something that we should, I mean, should mm. we even as Christians, should we use the word? I mean, should we refer yeah. to just a person's sex? I mean, because it's we don't want to say that it's subjective in the sense that, you know, because that would leave it open to saying that I can choose what I want to be. But that's more about the the roles and, and the other categories you were referring to. Um, so I guess I'm just I'm kind of still feeling a little confused on on how we should use that word. Yeah. And and I mean, maybe even going back to, um, you know, what what the other, you know, what what Sprinkle had said, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you think your identity is in your your gender, then then fine. Uh, but right. if not, then, I, you know, I, that's mm. I can't force anyone. I mean, I, I don't I don't force someone to believe in Christ because ultimately that's that's really the issue. It's, it's not about ultimately it's not ultimately about sexuality or gender. It's ultimately about surrendering to christ that's right. what it is ultimately about but mm-hmm. for me to say well if you want to do that that's fine if you want to, I, I i cannot in my right conscience ever say that no um it's mm-hmm. not that that's not helpful for a parent that's not helpful for a pastor that's not helpful for a christian um that's we right. do not just kind of just uh you know just nod politely in the face of um, hurtful lies that, that I know, you know, would be now with that being said, 
that does not mean that I'm going to be hitting people over the head with the Bible. Like my parents yeah. did not do that. They actually very rarely brought up I'm living in sin, which wow. can, can be can be some you know insight for parents. Mm. Um, our good. kids know what we believe. I'm not I'm not a parent. Uh, parents, your kids know what you believe. Yeah. Uh, I knew what my parents believed. They might have said it a few times, you know, toward the beginning, but I knew they were not changing. Right. Um, it just by the way they lived. I mean, and what does it mean about how they live? I saw Jesus. I mean, they could mm. not, uh, you know, anytime I would uh, see them, which was not a lot. Um, mm -hmm. The Bible, Jesus, Scripture. I mean, all of that was everywhere apparent they lived it they really did uh which was mm -hmm. another lesson for us as adults um if if people don't see us on sunday and they see us monday through saturday do they know that we're a christian yeah um, for my parents it was so obvious like they had moody radio playing uh mm -hmm. like 24 7 they were they were going to you know they said they were like christian conference junkies and they were just uh, very active in their church they were very active at bible study fellowship so they were yeah. so busy throughout the week with all these things and they but it's they good. weren't just doing it they were living it at home as well mm. so it was so obvious to me and and so as a christian i can in my right conscience say well if you want to do that well that's fine that's postmodernism. that's relativism I'm not going to be hit, hitting people over the head with that, but yeah. I want my hope. <clears throat> I don't ever want to get to the point where I'm like, well, that's fine for you. Right. I want that person. If they really ask me my opinion, I'm going to tell them, number one, the most important thing is to know and follow Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And through that relationship, that's going to point us to be more Christ-like. And if you want to know more about that, I would love to tell you more about that. That's but great. That is the goal. I don't ever, you know, so I, I really struggled with that statement. I did too. I mean, discipleship includes inviting God to tell us who we are and who he wants us to become. That should be qualified a bit to say, you know, to follow him, to be his disciple. That's right. Not to be, uh, you know, to... Of struggling with gender dysphoria or, you know, whether I'm a, I, I really am a man, even though I was born a woman or vice versa, you yeah. know, this is missing the point. So it that's is. what we should be inviting God to tell us who we are in Christ. And it comes back to that's that right. Galatians verse, which I know where you were going with that is that I know that many people maybe in the LGBTQ community might interpret that as though there is no such thing as male and female. Those are <laughs> that's all right. subjective. Androgynous. Right. Yes. And then they go to the, the passage about Jesus saying, we'll be like the angels, you know, which was also yeah. misinterpreted. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, I understand which, that. Which I, and I would go back to, um, mm. you know, the image of God. So when I talk about sex and gender, you know, mm -hmm. and so I have a talk where I talk about those four categories, sex, gender, norms, and roles. Right. I end with talking about the Imago Dei, which is yes. so key because in Genesis 127, the very well-known uh, Imago Dei passage, um, you know, that God made them, uh, God made man in his own image. Mm -hmm. And then in the image of God, uh, he made him, meaning God made human mm -hmm. which is kind of corporately humanity because right. adam in in hebrew means human but mm -hmm. then it goes to male and female he created them so you know him and them are kind of switched mm -hmm. meaning you know him in the more corporate sense as one of all humanity but also them is that we're also distinct mm -hmm. but, but what's beautiful here is in this kind of 
this parallel, three parallel lines of poetry, as you follow it, they're all parallel, mm-hmm. is that, whereas the first and second are very clearly, uh, you know, just flipping around the prepositional phrase with the verb, uh, subject, verb, object. But mm-hmm. then we have this replacement of in the image of God is it's replaced in the third line in Genesis 127 with this coupling of these two nouns, mm-hmm. male and female. So as you know, in, in, in church history, uh, there's been all this discussion about what in the world is the image of God. And, right. and there's a lot of different approaches to this. But one thing that I think is often really missed is that when we look at Genesis 127, the passage on the image of God, what mm-hmm. you cannot get away from is this very clear correlation between being created in the image of God mm-hmm. and being created male and female. That's, yeah. you cannot get around that. It no. is clear as day. There's this very clear correlation between the Imago Dei and mm-hmm. sexual differentiation. Well Not to say that it is that, but there's this very clear correlation. And I think one thing that we can definitely draw from that is this, that as much as we, as much as the image of God is essential to being human, male and female is also essential to being human. So the, and right. also a second thing that we can get is um, sometimes Christians, we oversimplify sexual differentiation just to be biological. It is that, mm. but it's way more than that from Genesis one twenty seven, from Genesis one twenty seven, we see that male and female is not just biological or genetic. Mm. It is spiritual. Yes. Male and female is a spiritual ontological reality mm. of being human. Yeah, that is that is so well said, and, and I think it's always re- you know, relevant to point out that God was walking personally with Adam and Eve too, as if to confirm, "I'm your nexus, I'm your center, I'm the the nucleus of who you are to be." Yes, male and female is important. This is a part of who you are, but ultimately, who you are is you have an, a share of the divine nature. You have you have me. I, I am right. the the point to, you know, which all things uh, point you know, to flow. Exactly. Yes, that's yep, right. Yep. And, and, and so, you know, because we have even heard people say, oh, then, then God, you know, you know, is, is God male or female or is he transgender mm. or whatever the, the mm. essentially Genesis 1, 20, uh, 1 and 2 is a polemic yeah. to all the pagan, you know, uh, right. creation narratives where these gods were male and female and they came together and then created the world. Oh yeah. That's Whereas right. As God himself is over all of that. He's not like any other gods because he is the one true God where mm-hmm. he wasn't male or female himself. He created male and female. Yes. No other gods were like that. No, that's, that's a very good theological point. Uh, wow. Um, well, I have to ask this last question, and I'm glad you went back to Imago Day because it was that was on the agenda to talk about. Um, the last question I want to ask you as we tie off our conversation um, for now, maybe we'll have to have you back on the show again in the future <laughs> sure. if you'd yeah. be uh, willing. Yeah. Um, great. To. Yeah, thank you. Um, so towards the end of your book, Holy Sexuality, you talk about guidelines for outreach and mm. not just for Christians, but I think just for people who are listening, because I know there are some that are not, who are just looking for some clarity about navigating conversations about this. So which are the ones that you feel strongly about the most that we should know? I mean, especially for our Christian audience, of course, but, yeah. you know, 
there's just there, there's so many good ones in there but uh could you give us maybe your top three or something like that yeah i would say it you know when we have this desire and i think many of us do especially now and you know when it's all around us have a desire to minister to share christ with our lgbtq plus friends neighbors uh co-workers relatives it could be our son or it could be our uncle mm-hmm. and um I think it's important for us to uh, also differentiate because there are also Christians who say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I know God's truth. I know that acting on this is not his will, it's sin. Um, but I experience things as attractions or I even experience gender ident- gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a reality of the fall. So just as mm-hmm. we experience you know different realities of the fall, whether it's an addiction or you know, an eating disorder, you know, a, a reality of the fall is this gender dysphoria. So there are Christians who are really wrestling with this, but they know this is not right to act on it. So they don't. Mm. How would we minister to them? I, I think um, we, we would hope that we are a person that is uh, safe. You know, mm-hmm. I, I use that word kind of uh, because the world loves that word. Uh, mm-hmm. The world loves that word. And I always wondered um should not the body of christ should not should we not be the safest place in the world yeah. are we safe yeah and so if someone comes to you you know when they're in time of need I, I think um i would thank them like thank them for opening up and sharing that with me i wouldn't ask them because i, I they need mm. to do it in their own time but you can kind of create that safe space to you know where they would be willing to be like you know and i would tell them i just want you to know i love you as a brother in the lord a sister in the lord and nothing can change my love for you nothing can change mm. my friendship that kind of creates that safe space and invites them in it but i would listen to them mm. um, not be first to kind of well this is what i believe mm. but listen and and yeah. you know use open ended questions tell me more mm. but a really important thing is help them to remember that their identity needs to be in Christ. I mean, we've already mm. talked about this, uh, but if there's yeah. one thing that I think Christians were missing yeah. is that we don't fully understand how sexuality has become not just what we do or think, it has wrongly become who we are. And that's mm. very easy for Christians even because we're living in this world saturated by it for us to f- kind of fall into that mistake as well. So we yeah. need to remind each other, you know, Michael, this is, you know, what you're feeling, whatever, you know, not even related to sexuality, that's not who you are. What you mm. do is not who you are. You know, for mm. me, I need to remind m- myself that daily. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so as Christians, I think that's really helpful. We are followers of Jesus. We're created in the image of God, but because we have put our faith in Christ, who is now the perfect image of God, that's why we want to put our identity in Christ. Essentially, this is just union with Christ. It's what, you know, what the early church has talked about till now for so much in him, in him, you know, abiding in him. So this is not kind of a foreign concept. It's just, I think identity, when we say union with Christ, you know, like what? What does that mean? <laughs> but I, I think identity, because identity is so much in our common vernacular now, identity mm-hmm. really makes sense. Oh, but yes. how do we share Christ with those in the gay community who don't know Christ? Mm. I think we need to be really bold in in, in not expecting that they're going to come to us. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, unbelievers aren't going to come knocking on your door, you know, unless they're Mormons or maybe Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but we need to go next door to our lesbian the couple and take them a casserole or, or Mm -hmm. say, Hey, can you come over for coffee? 
Um, and I know right away, Christians are thinking, if I do that, am I condoning their sin? Mm-mm. Well, you know, last time I checked, we usually have sinners over for dinner. So <laughs> there's nothing new. So I think that's really important for us yeah. to be intentional and, and yeah. help them to see this is, and we don't have to hold it on our sleeve and be like, hi, I'm a Christian, but maybe <laughs> eventually after the, maybe the second, third time we can share with them. And then they'll, they'll hopefully be shocked by like, wow, sure. you're, you're being friendly with me. And it's like, well, of course. So yeah. I think that's, and that's what kind of Rosario's kind of, you know, I, very important, you know, messages on hospitality are really helpful. You know, mm-hmm. what won me over most was being in a relationship and how people were pursuing me, even though I was pushing them away. My parents, mm-hmm. they, I did not leave pursuing same-sex relationships because my mom and dad convinced me it was sinful. Mm-hmm. I left pursuing same-sex relationships because my parents showed me something better. Mm. And his name is Jesus. Mm. So I think just kind of the simple, but yet, yet complex to live out rule is we need to oh. show a dying world out there that whatever they're holding on to, whether it's their gender or their sexuality as being everything, or whether it's a relationship or whether it's money, we need to show by our words and our actions, we need to live the gospel as we preach the gospel. We need to show the world that nothing is better than following Jesus. Wow. Yes. Amen. And and we we really need to, um, I think, learn to tell that story and, and to, to tell a better story uh, which is how we started today's um, show, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to show them that, uh, to show them that uh, Jesus is is the goal. Um, I'm I'm speechless. That was wonderful, and uh, I, I know I'm going to be re-listening to this myself to take more notes. So, <laughs> um, oh, I've learned so much. Thank you. Uh, is there anything else you think we've missed that you want our listeners to? Um, to hear before we go or yeah i mean i've um thank you so much michael for being prepared and and uh, we had a, i could I, I could probably go on for two three hours on this me too <laughs> me too um you know i i think you know maybe one thing i i'd i'd like to add about i'm in the midst right now of working on a curriculum and i'm really excited ah. about this so my book holy sexuality in the gospel which you know which we're talking about and which which you said you've you've read uh, or mm-hmm. a couple times or whatever um i probably you could tell Michael when I wrote it, I I had adults in mind or young adults in mind, but you know, in this two years since that book has come out, I've just realized we need something for, for kids, for teens. There's nothing out there. There's a lot of stuff about what not to do abstinence. Mm-hmm. And well, I think those are important, but we can't build sure. a Christian life on God's no. Mm. So what is God's yes? And so I'm kind of turning mm. my 20 chapter book into 10 video lessons. That's going to be a curriculum, an online video curriculum. And the videos will be kind of high, high quality with animation and stuff like that. Oh, cool. But it's going to be catchy and, um, not gimmicky, but, but in, engaging right. is a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. So um, the goal is to create a version for Christian schools and for churches, but our ultimate goal, our main goal is to actually have this version. And we're going to push this hard. It's a version for parents. Oh, praise God. So that parents yeah. go over with their parents, with their kids yeah. at home. Praise. My parents and I strongly, strongly believe that discipleship must be, be primarily done at home. Yep. The church, um, if kids go to a Christian school or whatever, that only should yep. be secondary. Primarily, it's at home. Mm. And discussions on sexuality must primarily be done at home, but it's right. not. 
No. And a lot of the resources now today are like for churches or mm-hmm. whatever, but we don't have any that are specifically that a parent and a husband and wife, or even a single parent can, mm-hmm. can just take this, you know, uh, this online curriculum and then uh, go over it with their kids. So we're super excited about this. We're hoping that it'll be done by the end of this year. Um, I was just about to ask. Okay. Yeah. End of this yeah, year. When? But, <laughs> yeah. But people, if people are interested, you could go to yeah. uh, where it will be housed on the curriculum and it's just holysexuality.com. Okay. And, um, and then a- that's a place where that curriculum, you can like put your name and your email. So when it does come out, you can, uh, we'll send it like an email blast, but uh, fantastic. I'll put it in the show notes. So people will yes. know. Great. Wow. I'm, uh, I know Sarah and I will be looking forward to it eagerly. So thank you for sharing that. Definitely. All right, everybody. Well, we will see you, uh, next time out on the mission. Thank you, Dr. Yuan once more. You're welcome. God bless you. Mm-hmm.